0: And you're constantly having to, to fight to keep it on the road. There's this natural drift. And this, this drift of our hearts towards legalism is one that we have to fight. We have to pull the steering wheel to keep it straight on the road. And sometimes we hit the, the rumble strip, you might say, of, of legalism. And, and, and we just have that drift and we're always fighting. It's the pull of our heart. It's, it, it's really, it's the pull of pride. It's, it's it can't our, our pride can't deal with a system of belief that's based only on faith. Our pride cries out: there must be something that I have to do. The fight becomes even harder when we have these false teachers involved, like the Galatians did. We said that they're kind of like the annoying backseat drivers, right? I mean, the car is already pulling to the right, and we're fighting against it, and they're in the back saying, "Yeah, go that way." that's that's the way you want to go let your car drift all the way off to the right side of the road it's false religion that comes in and says jesus is not enough or or, jesus is a good start but you need to add something you need to do something else if you want to have any hope of being saved and accepted by god we have all these people who are speaking this poison of legalism into our lives it might be tv it might be internet it might be flesh-and-blood people who are telling us these things, or even just the drift of our own hearts. And and so we find ourselves thinking and feeling that we are more loved by God this week than last week because of what we have done, or because of what we have not done, or how we compare to others. We hear applications from sermons, and, and what they become are more items on the list of things to do. You're Pastor stands up here and holds up this green card and says, use this to invite someone to come to our Easter service. And you say, ah, if I do that, God will really love me and everyone else will like me more too. If I, if I would do that, we add it to the list of things that we're supposed to do. We even allow the words of, of scripture instead of driving us to Jesus to find the strength to do those things. They drive us to pride and we say, I'll do better this week. I'll do that this week because I failed last week and now god's not happy with me i don't feel accepted by god and paul has been arguing against the the folly and the futility the frustration of legalism and he's arguing for the rock solid truth of salvation by grace through Faith, And as he prepares, he's getting ready to transition in in chapters 5 and 6 into talking about how we can live and walk in the freedom of the Spirit, in this, that that key word of Galatians, that we are free to walk in the Spirit. And he closes out this argument of chapters 3 and 4 by making it very clear. This is his main point. It's in Christ we are free from legalism. In Christ we are free from legalism. It's a strong argument that he makes. It's an argument that would have been shockingly clear to the Judaizers and to the Galatians. It's an argument that strips us of all pride, of all self-reliance, and it places our hope for salvation solely on the the work of Christ on our behalf. There's some some notes on on the back of your bulletin this week, and you'll see why as we go through. But Paul goes from history. He talks about a historical event. Then he explains the history in in the form of an allegory, a a type. And then he brings this strong application to the Galatians. But let's read this passage together as as we think on these things, as we think about the fact that in Christ we are free from legalism. Read these verses with me. They may be confusing as we read through them first, but I hope they become clear because the argument that Paul makes is so strong. He says in verse 21, Tell me, you who want to be under law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman and one by the free woman. But the son of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and the son by the free woman through the promise. This is allegorically speaking, for these women are two covenants one proceeding from Mount Sinai, bearing children who are to be slaves. She is Hagar. Now this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, barren woman who does not bear! Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor, for more numerous are the children of the desolate." Than of the one who has a husband, and you brethren, like Isaac, are children of promise, but as at that time he who was born according to the flesh, flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so it is now also. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman, so then brethren. We are not children of a bondwoman, but of the free woman. Paul addresses in verse 21, he says, Tell me, you who want to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? He addresses the Judaizers and the Galatians in verse 21. And he says, okay, everyone who wants to be under the law, if that's what you want, do you understand what the law is saying? It's like you can imagine two people kind of having a discussion and they disagree, say, about some new law that's going to go into effect or some legal document. And one says, you know, I agree that with that law. I I would like to live underneath the stipulations of that law. And the other person says, have you even read that law? Do you understand what it's communicating? And Paul is saying, you want to live under the law? Do you understand it? Because if you understood the law, you would not want to live Underneath it. And then he launches into his argument and he begins by going back and relating a story from history, verses 22 and 23. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman and one by the free woman, but the son by the bondwoman was born according to the flesh and the son by the free woman through the promise. So he relates this portion of the Abraham narrative regarding two women, regarding Hagar and Sarah. and their their sons, Ishmael and Isaac. And he zeroes in on this fact. Abraham had how many sons? He had two sons. Abraham actually had more sons than that, but for the purpose of illustration, Paul says Abraham had two sons. You'll remember that God had made a promise. He had made a covenant with Abraham that he would give him a land, that he would make his children as many as the sand on the seashore and that all who blessed him would be blessed, and those who cursed him would be cursed. And it was a wonderful promise. But there was a problem. Abraham and Sarah were old, and they didn't have any children. They had never had any children, and Sarah was now at an age where having children was physically impossible. I want you to think about this. Sarah was in her 80s. Now, no offense to those who are in their 80s. My grandmother is in her 80s, but neither she nor I can imagine her being pregnant. It just doesn't make sense. My And when God told Sarah, she said, you are going to have a son. It, it was the same way. She couldn't imagine being pregnant. If that was... The case, how could God fulfill the promise that he had made to Sarah if she could not have children? Abraham and Sarah, they believed God, but they didn't understand how he was going to come through on this promise that he had made. Until one day, Sarah had a great idea. She said, I can't have children, but my slave Hagar can. So Abraham, I want you to take Hagar as your wife. I want you to have a child with her and then that child can fulfill the promise that God made to us Sarah said I believe God I believe that he's going to accomplish his plan but God helps those who help themselves and so we need to do this to accomplish his plan we have faith but let's add some works to our faith does it sound familiar Well, Abraham listened to the voice of Sarah, and Hagar had a son by Abraham, and they called him Ishmael. So the problem is solved. They now have an heir, a son, who can fulfill the promise that God has made to them. Except God comes and he says no. He says he is not the son of promise. As I said, Sarah is going to have a child. And Abraham and Sarah both laughed at the absurdity of the word of the Lord, they both laughed at the thought of it, and yet they also laughed one day when the impossible became reality, and Sarah, who was now in her 90s, felt this flutter in her womb. There was now a child there that was growing in her. According to the word of the Lord, Sarah had a son. And you remember what Sarah named that son? Isaac. Which means laughter. Because they had laughed. And just in disbelief. And yet now they were laughing with joy that God had fulfilled his promise. His name was Isaac. But it could have well, it could just as well have been son of promise. Because that's who Isaac was. He was the son of promise. Because nothing is impossible with the Lord. He can accomplish anything he wants apart from you or I or whatever we think we need to add to it. What a beautiful story of God's faithfulness to His word, His His power in weakness, His sovereignty. So Paul briefly accounts this story, and and those the 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 Judaizers, the Galatians, they would have filled in the gaps. They knew this this story well, and so now he he says this is an allegory. Verses 24 through 27, he starts to apply it as an allegory. This is allegorically speaking, for these women are two covenants, one proceeding from Mount Sinai, bearing children who are to be slaves. She is Hagar. Now this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, barren woman who does not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor, for more numerous are the children of the desolate than of the one who has a husband, and you, brethren, like Isaac, are children of promise. Now, like I said, the Judaizers, the Galatians, they knew this story well. Uh, They were familiar with that story, but they were not familiar with the way that Paul was about to apply it. The the way that they would have applied this story would have probably gone something like this. The, The Jewish Judaizers from Jerusalem would have come to the Gentile Galatians, and they would have said, we are children of Abraham. We're children of promise, according to the line of Isaac. You are Gentiles. You are according to the line of Ishmael. And what you need to do is become Jewish like us if you want to be children of promise. If you want to be children of Abraham, you need to do these things because true children of Abraham are circumcised law keepers. That would have been the way that they would have applied the story. But what does Paul do? Is a completely different interpretation. He takes these historical facts from Genesis and he says that they speak directly to this issue in Galatia. Now you'll see this this chart that is in your uh, in your bulletin. That's because this is it's hard to track with. And as I was reading through it, I said, "Man, I gotta put this down in some sort of chart to help me see what Paul is saying." Um, and so hopefully this is helpful. Let's let's walk through. First of all, let's just walk through Hagar. The text says that Hagar was a bondwoman, that she was a slave. She was owned by Abraham and Sarah. Hagar had a son named Ishmael, and Paul says Ishmael was born according to the flesh. What that means is that he was born according according to human ingenuity. He was born according to human will. Or simply put, he he was born the way that all children are born, by the will of two people. There was nothing supernatural or amazing about Ishmael's birth. So Ishmael's born according to the flesh. And he says then that these two, Hagar and Ishmael, are a covenant. They're a promise. They're a covenant from Mount Sinai, from the present-day Jerusalem. He says Ishmael is the old covenant, a covenant of law. And he says this corresponds to the present-day Jerusalem, to the Jewish People to these false teachers, to the Judaizers who had come from Jerusalem to mess up the faith of the Galatians. That that's what they, corres, that's what Ishmael corresponds to. And he says that those who are children of the flesh, the children of, of Hagar are slaves. The children of the flesh of human works of this covenant based on works rather than faith alone. And so they are slaves like Hagar and her son Ishmael. Can you imagine being a Judaizer and having Paul tell you, you're not a son according to promise. You are a slave. You are a son according to Ishmael. It's quite the bold statement that he is making. Paul made it clear, though, you remember back in chapter 3, that that a person, to be a child of Abraham, it, it doesn't have anything to do with physical descent. We are children of Abraham because Abraham was a man of faith. We're children of Abraham because we walk in faith as he did. And he revisits that that line of thought and he says to those who want to keep the law, he says, fine, you're children of Abraham, according to Ishmael, not according to Isaac. This shocking statement says, he says that they were seeking salvation through their legalistic adherence to the law in addition to their faith. And while they were children of Abraham, they were children according to the line of Hagar, according to the line of Ishmael, according to Sinai, according to the earthly Jerusalem, therefore according to slavery. So Ishmael represents this this faith that says, I believe, but I need to add this to my belief. It's a faith that says God's promises are true, but he helps those who help themselves. It's a faith that tries to couple its pride and self-sufficiency with faith and when that happens faith flies out the window you remember that legalism when, when paul sees it he says it, it's as if my efforts are in vain he says um in verse 21, I don't nullify the grace of God. Chapter 2, verse 21, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. He says, fine, if that's what you want to believe, but then if you believe that, Galatians, if you want to believe that salvation is faith plus works, then you just throw the gospel out the window. It's unnecessary. Why in the world did Christ die? There was no point. You know, Jesus preaches the same message in John chapter 8. I just want to read a portion of this. If you've been reading through John with us, then you read this not too long ago. But Jesus is so bold and says the same thing. In John 8, beginning in verse 31, it says, So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. They answered him, the Jews answered him, they said, We are Abraham's descendants. And have never yet been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you seek to kill me. Because my word has no place in you. I speak the things which I have seen with my father Therefore, you also do the things which you heard from your father. Jesus goes a step further. What does Paul say? He says, fine, you're children of Abraham, but you're children of Abraham according to the line of Ishmael. Jesus says, you're not children of Abraham. You're children of a different father. You're children of your father, the devil. So reliance on self does not bring freedom. It brings slavery. Jesus himself says it. So we've got Hagar. Hagar is this this covenant of works. Hopefully that's clear. Let's look at the other side of the chart with, with Sarah. Sarah is a free woman. She's not a slave like Hagar. She is completely free. And she has a son. She has a son named Isaac. And he is born through the promise. Later on, it Paul changes the wording. In verse 29, he says he's born according to the Spirit. His birth was supernatural. He's born to parents who are pushing 100 years old. It was obvious that this birth was something that only God could do, only God could ordain, only God could accomplish. And it shows Abraham and Sarah that their efforts were not the source of the birth of this child. The birth of this child was ordained by God. It was God's doing. And whatever Abraham and Sarah wanted to add to it, they couldn't. It was supernatural. It was something that God alone could do. And therefore, it's a covenant from Jerusalem, but from the heavenly Jerusalem. His birth is in line with, with a new covenant, with a, a covenant that's that's rooted in a new way, not in, not in the old Judaism of works of the flesh, of the law, but it's rooted in faith alone. It's, it's the faith of the new Jerusalem, this heavenly Jerusalem that is made up of the children of promise who have faith for salvation and children that are born according to this line are free that's what he says in verse 28 and you brethren like isaac are children of promise we are not slaves we are free if we're born according to faith we are absolutely free if we are children of the promise we are not in bondage to sin anymore we are free children and those who are children of faith are true true children of Abraham, descendants of Isaac. And if you have put your faith in Christ alone, then you are a child of promise according to the line of Isaac. You are not a slave to the law. You are not a slave to sin. God has set you free from that. And so we are free from sin. We are free from the law. We are free from legalism. We're free from having to do things to make God happy with us. Why? Because he has done it all just as he did with the birth of Isaac. It had nothing to do with Abraham and Sarah. It was supernatural, an act of God. It wasn't something that Sarah and Abraham came up with, like they did with Hagar and Ishmael. That was their own doing. Yes, we believe God, but we want to add something to it. And God says, if you want to do that, that's, that doesn't work. That's not how I operate. I'm going to fulfill the promise. I'm going to do it. And you will have absolutely nothing to do with it. And so was our salvation. And the response then is verse 27. It is written, Rejoice, barren woman who does not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor, for more numerous are the children of the desolate than of the one who has a husband. Talking about Sarah from Isaiah fifty-four one, and the response is that we rejoice. We rejoice that God has set us free, that we are children of promise, not because we were born according to the line of Abraham, but because by faith we are now made children of promise. So the question is, in this passage is, whose child are you? Are you finding your hope for salvation in the good works that you do, in the legalism of lists? And if so, then you are a child of Hagar, and you are a slave. But if you come by faith alone to Christ in repentance... You've repented of your sins. You've repented of even your good deeds and reliance on them. You've repented of your pride and self-sufficiency. If you've turned to Christ, then you trust that he paid the penalty for your sins, that he did the work that we could not do. And therefore, by faith, we become free sons of Abraham, sons of God. So that's the allegory. Then he moves into this This application that, as I read through, is just so surprising the way that Paul speaks here, and yet it's in tune with the rest of the passage. He continues the illustration in verses 29 through 31. Listen to what he says. As at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit. So it is now also. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of a bondwoman, but of the free woman. He continues the illustration into Genesis chapter 21, where there was this this circumstance where Isaac and Ishmael had kind of the, a run-in of sorts. Um, Ishmael was, was much older, and Isaac had just been weaned, and they had had this celebration. And even though there was this big age difference they were rivals uh, ishmael knew what was going on he knew who isaac was and so there was this this um this circumstance where it would seem that ishmael was mocking isaac was treating him poorly without getting into the intricacies of that event what happens is is god says or sarah says i want you to get rid of hagar and ishmael i want you to kick them out because Ishmael is is mocking my son. And Abraham doesn't know what to do with this. And he goes to the Lord and the Lord says, yes, you need to send away the, the bondwoman and her son. You need to. Send. This is a quote here from Genesis 21. Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman. That's a whole other discussion. What does that mean? What, what is God doing there? But what Paul is doing is he's using it as, as an illustration. He says, it says here, but as at that time, those who read books have you read, did you swear this week? Not sure if God loves you because that's on the list of things that we have to do. You have faith, but do you listen to Christian radio? How many ministries were you involved with this week? Did you read your Bible today? Did you go to church three times this week? Because that's the magic number. If you want to be truly saved by God, you have to go... We only have three services, so we're in trouble, aren't we? Um, some of those are good things, right? But if it becomes something where someone is trying to place a yoke of slavery upon us, that's what Paul says. It's it's persecution. It's, it's someone telling us, so you have to do this. You have to be this way. You can't do that or God won't love you or you're not a true child of God. We all face this. And like I said, our hearts are already wanting to go that direction. So when people start telling us, oh, this is what makes you good, this is what makes God love you, then our hearts run to those things. Paul takes legalism very seriously. He said at the beginning of this book, if anyone comes to you and preaches another gospel, they are to be cursed. They are to be anathema. And so his response to legalism here, his the, the kind of crescendo of, verses, of chapters 3 and 4, is he says, here is the application, cast out the bondwoman and her son. The application is do what Abraham did and throw them out. In this car that we have that already wants to fade right, Paul says, if someone's in the back seat telling you go that direction, then hit the brakes and kick them out. Because your heart already wants that and you cannot have those kind of those legalistic influences that are telling you this is what you need to do to be accepted by God. It sounds harsh, but it's where our hearts want to go anyways. So if there are those that are speaking legalism into your life that causes you to stumble into it, not to rely on faith alone, then you are to cast them out, If there is a preacher that you listen to or a television program that you watch or a friend that you know or a Bible study that you attend and you find that it is dragging you into this, this religion of lists, then Paul says, just stop. You can't do that because it's going to pull you away from true faith in Christ alone. Paul has called this, you remember, he, he said in in chapter 3, verse 1, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? He uses the language of witchcraft related to legalism. And then later on in, in chapter 4, we saw those elemental spirits. These the, the, the Legalism is related to these weak and worthless elemental spirits, these demonic forces. And so we treat legalism the same way that we would treat witchcraft or the doctrine of demons. We get rid of it. It's not just people that are speaking into our lives, but are are there prideful, legalistic tendencies in our own lives? Do we have these lists that, that we impose on ourselves and that we even impose on others? Are we like the Judaizers? Do we look at other people and say, well, they don't measure up to this standard. There's this one thing that all Christians have to do. And if they don't do that, well, I don't know. I'm not sure if they're truly saved. Surely there needs to be fruit in our lives, and yet legalism kills the freedom that Christ has called us to. And so if there are those tendencies, what do we have to do? Cast them out. Get rid of them. How? How do we get rid of this, this thing that we want to do so bad that we, we've been taught from our youth up that in order for people to be happy with you, you have to do what's right. And that, in order for God to be happy with you, you have to obey the law. You have to follow this set of rules. What, what are we going to do if this is so ingrained in us? How do you root out this tendency that's so much a part of our our culture? The way that we do it is is with the gospel. It's to preach the gospel to us, to come to church and hear the gospel all the time, to hear that it's not what you do, but it's what Christ has done. Legalism has deep roots. It's overtaken the soil of many of our lives, and they will always be there. But the truth of the gospel is like this giant pickaxe, and we go after these roots, and we dig up the dirt, and we expose the legalism, and then you take the pickaxe of the gospel, and you chop the root, and you kill it at its source. Because that's what the gospel does. You may be tired of hearing this message from Galatians 3-4. through Because it's been very similar every week, hasn't it? We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, not by works of the law. But we have to hear it every week because we forget it. We have to hear it again and again. And and it's my hope that, that the message of Galatians would just sink down deep into our hearts so that when legalism comes, we... We fight against it naturally because we know what the message of this book is. We know what it's saying. We know the truth of it. We know that Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. That that those things become something that we combat legalism with. That we ask ourselves, if I've, I've begun by the Spirit, why would I ever want to be perfected by the flesh that we, we think about the fact that, um, nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. We take that, and that we use God's word like that pickaxe of the gospel that kills legalism at its root. We say, this is what's true, this is what I believe. And then we we just think of statements. There's things that should just roll off your tongue, and I pray that we can just repeat them enough that that they just. This is what I believe. That you say, you know what, my salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, not by works of the law. That that would just it would just flow out of your heart because it's what's true in Scripture. One of my favorites is is that um, is that my hope for rescue from God's wrath is not what I do. But what Christ has done. That, that that would be in your mind always that you would say, you know what, I'm, 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 I'm falling into legalism, I'm falling into religion because I'm thinking about what I have to do, 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 instead of what Christ has done. That those things would just they would be in our, in our hearts. And then and then the other thing that you know we sing these songs, we sang, There is a fountain, we we sang that dark is the stain that we cannot hide. This is not, actually this is not there is a fountain. This is just one I was thinking about. Um, Marvelous grace of our loving Lord. Dark is the stain that we cannot hide. What can avail to wash it away? The things that I do? No, he says, look, there is flowing a crimson tide. Whiter than snow you will be today. That there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunge beneath that flood. Lose all their guilty stain. Or we're going to sing in closing, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. I don't trust anything else. How do you kill legalism? You celebrate the gospel. You rejoice in the truth of the gospel. You memorize the gospel because our hearts want to go that way and we have to throw it out we throw at anyone who is who is speaking that into our lives because it is not true and that's where we want to go anyways we get rid of it and we get rid of the things in our heart that are that are doing that that are heading in that direction and we preach the gospel to ourselves from his word and from just from from music and from all these things that it would it would kill the root of legalism it's a crescendo argument, isn't it, that Paul brings? It's a it's a bold argument. It flows in line with his thoughts about Abraham, but I think he just said, "You know, I'm going to save this one for last because this is this is the zinger. This is the one that's going to help them really see what I really believe about it." I, I was listening to a message by John Piper from this passage yesterday, and he he just made this side comment that I just I tried to take it a a little bit further because it it opened up this passage for me in so many unique ways. So I want to close with this. He he made this side comment about the evil of legalism and our bent towards it and and what the gospel says. And he mentioned the charge that's often leveled against Christianity where people say that Christianity is a crutch. Have you heard this? It's a crutch for weak people. It's something that you have to to lean on. But if you're really strong, you wouldn't need the crutch. What's behind that critique of Christianity? What's behind it is is the prideful, self-centered desire to attain salvation on our own. What do you, if, if you're using a crutch, it's because one of your legs are bad. Well, what's wrong with that? Well, I want to be able to stand on my own two feet. I want to do what I need to do to make myself right before God. It's this worldly wisdom that says, I must do something for everyone else to accept me and to love me and to like me. So surely I have to do something for God to like me, and I can do it. Or if we take it to the Judaizers, they say, yeah, start with faith, but continue with works." So it's kind of like, well, I've got one good leg. I need the crutch of faith, but then I've got this other leg that I'm going to do my good works with. If you ever face that, if someone ever comes to you and says, you know, Christianity, your faith, it's, it's a crutch. It's something that you're leaning on because you can't stand on your own two feet. The response isn't to say, no, it's, it's not a crutch. It, it's to say, you, you know, it isn't a crutch. It's, it's actually a lot worse than you thought. Um, true Christianity is it, salvation by, by faith alone. It, it's, it's more like a stretcher. You know, it's, it's, it's that I'm on the stretcher. And actually, I'm dead. <laughs> my, my heart has completely malfunctioned, and there's no way to salvage it. And let's take the stretcher, and why don't we just, for the fun of it, we'll put it in a prison cell. I mean, that's how bad it is. It's, it's not that I just need a crutch because I've got a bum leg. It's I'm laying on a stretcher with a completely broken heart, and I'm in the jail cell of the law and of sin. So if you think a crutch is bad, if that shows how weak I am, well, I'd like to place myself dead on a stretcher in the midst of a prison cell. And so then what does the gospel speak to us? It doesn't say stand up and lean on faith a little bit and hobble along with your good leg. It says Jesus has to come in and break the bars. He has to set you free, He has to break into the prison cell. And when he comes in, he's a surgeon. And he says, this heart will not work anymore. You can't do anything with this heart. So we're going to do a heart transplant. I'm going to take this heart of stone, and I'm going to give you a heart of flesh, and I'm going to write my law on it, and I'm going to give you my spirit, and that's how you are going to walk in the way that you're supposed to. So Jesus comes into that cell because of his death and resurrection. He kills and he breaks the bonds of sin. And he gives us a new heart because our hearts cannot do it on our own. And when he does that transplant, then we are raised up to new life. And it's a life that is free. It's a life that is free from legalism. And the beautiful truth, and to be honest, this is why I've said I want to, I want to preach through Galatians. I want to preach through Galatians because I want to get to chapters 5 and 6. And together... Let's try to figure out how do we walk by the Spirit? Because he says in verse 1 of chapter 5, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. I always feel like that yoke of slavery gets put back on me and I want to figure out what does Paul say? How do we walk by the Spirit? Because if I'm free, I want to live free. I don't want to walk around with a yoke of slavery, with a yoke of legalism on me. And Paul says you have been justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's not by the things that you do. It's by what Christ has done. And your hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And you are free from the law and from sin. And you are free now to walk in the Spirit and not fulfill the desires of the flesh. That's the message that we give. It's not a message that's rooted in our pride It's not a message that's rooted in our own ingenuity. It's a message that's rooted in what Christ has done for us. Let's pray together, and then we will sing of that truth and close with our moment of silence and benediction. But let's pray.